1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a, book, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I am here today with Judith Polman, professor of early modern Dutch history at Leida University and Leida in the Netherlands, to talk about her book, Catholic Identity and the Revolt of the Netherlands, 1520 to 1625. This book was first published in two thousand. 11 by Oxford University Press and we are here to talk about it today that's 10 year anniversary and on the occasion of its paperback release. Hello Judith and welcome to the podcast. Hello thank you for having me. Thanks very much for joining me. How are you on this is it a blustery day down in Lida as well? It certainly is autumn has started. Yeah today is yes. today is our uh, proper Dutch weather yeah? That's right. <laughs> All right um so thanks for agreeing to talk to me today. It was a really enjoyable read, um, and you know, in some ways, it, it's it's so clear how you came to this. It's it's right in your interests, right of the Dutch, the Reformation, kind of the culture of the Reformation writ large, uh, particularly in the Netherlands. But I'm curious, exactly, like kind of what what brought you to this? How did you come to write this book? Well, um, there's a,
0: a long and a short version of this. Um, I suppose my my interest in the world of Catholicism. And in responses to religious change, is triggered by my own family history, um, because I'm a child um, uh, born of a family that was very Catholic um, when I was born, I suppose. And uh, but my my parents' generation lost their faith, like many other Dutch people in the 60s and 70s. So I was raised in a in a secular environment that had at the same time very strong memories of a past in which Catholicism had been very important. And um, when I was listening to my um, uh, grandmother and so on, reflecting on on that history and the history of Catholicism in her life, um, one of the things that she would tell me is that even though they were very committed believers, um, she felt they were never taken very seriously by their priests. So that lay people like herself, so not just women, but also lay men. So people, you know, in Catholicism, you make a division between lay people, that's ordinary people and priests who have, um, uh, you know, who who are not just religious professionals, but also have a sacrament that makes them, turns them into priests. And um, the idea was that the religious professionals really, um, uh, well, they were in charge. And um my my grandmother's generation felt that they weren't taken that seriously by their priests. So um so the stories of this, how people um respond to uh religious cultures and also how this in turn influenced my own parents' decision. Um, you know, their 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 grand my grandparents stayed with the church, but their children all left the church, partly I'm sure, because they they felt um, ignored by religious leadership, even though the church, the Catholic Church, went through a big um, uh, change in the in the nineteen sixties in Vatican II, a big um, uh, modernization attempt at the church, um, and it was an attempt to become modern, but it was also very much a clerical affair. Um, and I suppose the frustration that my that my family felt had something to do with that process of losing their faith. So now I'm an early modern historian I'm a historian of the early modern period so that is from 1500 to in Europe that means from 1500 to uh, 1700 or 1800 um, and I've always worked on religious on change and and uh, religious change especially precisely also because these things interested me um, as a modern person but for the 16th century they're also particularly Relevant because that is the moment when the great, you know, the big in in Latin Christianity, so not the Greek and Russian Orthodox traditions, but the the Western Christian traditions. um, The 16th century is really the moment where everything changes because there you have um, the Protestant Reformation that uh, splits Europe across new religious lines and in some countries even splits families across. Um, different lines and it triggers conflict um, and war and I was very intrigued in how I've I've always been very intrigued by how people responded to that change why some people wanted to become Protestants and others didn't why what they said to their mothers you know when you've become a Protestant what do you go and you go home what do you say to your mom Um, uh, especially since all believers at that time were pretty much fundamentalists so, you know, you either went, you know, you went to hell, basically, if you didn't. Um, so so people had to accommodate that. And I'm quite interested in, in, in the sort of human experience of change and how people feel um, and how they feel their way through the power relations with priests, with each other, with new developments in their society,
1: that sort of thing. It's interesting here because I see the two kind of very big historiographical issues that we talk about regarding um, the era of re- reformations and Catholic reformation, um, which we, you know, we, we don't call the counter-reformation anymore, but um, that I, you know, this, these, uh, this time of, of turbulence and of European wide as we, as Catholic, as religion is, and one's relationship with it is rethought. So, and that's this huge institutional change, right? Like mm-hmm. what the, that we're going to see at the Council of Trent, and we're going to have these massive institutional changes. That's mirrored, I think, in the 60s, right, with with Vatican II. Yes, but in some then, ways is, yeah, yeah. And then there's this other story, which is this very personal. How do people practice? How do how do lay people? How do the how do the religious? How do religious people feel about their interaction with their religion? Um, and you know, you 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 deal with both here um, but there's a lot of the personal here. Um, and you know, you start with this story about your grandparents. Uh, and I was kind of, so when I was looking through to figure to check out what your sources were, I see how you get at kind of both sides of this reformation, the reformation. So, and I think our listeners will find that very interesting. What are you consulting here? What are you using to write this history?
0: Yes. So, well, the history of Catholicism is traditionally very much written through the the archives of the church itself. And that also means you always get that very institutional and professional voice, right? Because the people who built the archives are also the priests and the religious um, houses and so on. They're they are the ones in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I wanted to, I had in, in the earlier part of my career, I worked on Protestantism. And um, I had the idea around um, in the beginning of the millennium, the new millennium, that perhaps you could use um, the strategies that have been used to study Protestantism and particularly the early stages of Protestantism when it wasn't very well organized, that perhaps you could use the same techniques to think about Catholics too. And that meant that um, because students of Protestantism worked much more with um, the voices of individual believers, letters, uh, memoirs, songs, um, well, whatever they could find, really, and traces of how people express their interest, court cases. And um, um, we're very fortunate in the Netherlands that um, literacy levels are very high there, even in the 16th century, which means that quite a lot of people write, even women write. Um, and this means that um, quite a lot of people use their literacy to keep... Uh, Records about what they found very important in their own time, so they kept a sort of a bit like we all did in the COVID epidemic. You know, when it started, Uh people started to keep lockdown diaries. Uh So I've seen quite a few diaries of people who who say, you know, in 1566, when there's a big outbreak of Calvinist violence against images in the Netherlands, and you know, very angry Catholics sit down and say things that are happening now must be remembered i'm going to write down what those satellites of satan have been doing (laughs) here and so on so so you can see the there is a sort of additional people were literate anyway and there's a tradition of writing local um local texts but they're also at moments of crisis people have this feel this need to try and retake control of their lives in a way to and and start writing down their version of what's just been happening. And I think that's, that's um, we're very fortunate to have these texts. They've not, they had, people had used them sort of anecdotally to tell the story about individual towns. But um, I was fortunate to uh, a very lovely colleague from the UK, um, Alistair Duke, at some point gave me a list of texts that he thought. And I thought, of course, it's actually a long list. And it's actually a, a list with lots of Catholics on it. So perhaps what I could do is to try and write the story of what happened there through these, um, through the voices of these people. So that's really the idea behind the book: is to try and tell it from people who basically had no idea that what they were uh, witnessing was going to, well, how that was going to end, um, whether um, the split in the church was going to be fine final, you know, whether it would stay that way, whether there would be new solutions, um, and who were also deploring the sort of everyday hassle that it brought, you know, confusion in their cities
1: and conflicts in families and war, obviously. Sure. Right. And I think that's an important thing to remember, just, you know, about all the time when we're doing history, but like something like this, it seems so we we have a world where there are Catholics and there are Protestants. And it seems like that would have been, you know, from, say, Luther on, that's a given, but that's not the case. It's certainly not clear that there's going to be a a split in Christendom. That's inconceivable in this period. And then it's not clear for the people who are living through it at all.
0: That's right. That's right. And uh, well, and, and even when when some people have made a sort of clean break, as it were, of course, it's not it's that's easier said than done, because they, you know, they all Protestants are ex-Catholics in this period. Right. So um, a bit like, you know, my the secular generation of my parents, they had all their friends were ex-Catholics, as it were, of course. So, so they're still in some way tied to that past. And in practical sense, 16th century people very much need their families to survive. Mm-hmm. So you can't just um, ignore um, the fact that well, there are still other relationships. Then there are the authorities that have views about this. It's There's censorship. There are laws against it. Um, quite a lot of Protestants end up having to flee the country for a long period of time. And then Catholics end up having to flee mm-hmm. uh, the Netherlands. So it is a very, very um, earth-shattering event, um, even though there are still, throughout the conflict, people who say, so what is this about? Shouldn't we just follow the words of Christ? How difficult can it be? Uh, you know, all the sort of things that desperate, a and and... Um, you many Christians have been saying ever since.
1: You know, sure, why is right. it
0: so hard? You know, how hard can it be? <laughs> how hard can this be? Yeah. Well,
1: yeah. right. Shouldn't we just follow the words of Christ? That yeah. actually is, in fact, the question. Should we, <laughs> or should I? Yeah. How about, or are there other things? Um, you know. So I, uh, one of the things that I learned while I was reading this, or really got a grasp on, was just how many people in the low countries were very devout Catholics. Like, the, you know, and I mm-hmm. guess I should have thought this through, but I always think of the Netherlands as this highly Calvinist place, you know, mm-hmm. um, particularly compared to Italy where I work. But there's a, I mean, the majority of the population are Catholic, yeah, of the Catholic confession.
0: Well, the the, the complication here is that in the 16th century, the Netherlands were, uh, and Belgium mm-hmm. and Luxembourg were one country. Right. So and, at the start of the period. And um all of those places were very devout places. Um, if you think of all those wonderful painters in the, uh, in the, all those lovely um, Gothic churches and the wonderful Flemish primitives and so on, um, this was all commissioned and paid for by people who really cared about their um, religion. So um, um and even there, there's been a phase when people thought, "Oh well, these people they aren't aren't taking it so seriously." But I think we've changed, we've changed views on this generally. I suppose that like, you know that was a sort of story that the Catholic Church itself also wanted to tell because they needed to explain, after all, how the Protestant Reformation had been possible. Mm-hmm. So, so Catholic history too has this for a long time has this story. Oh, you know, we 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 weren't taking care of this church properly and corruption and so on, and we lost people. And then we cleaned up our act in the Council of Trent and then everything got back better. And unfortunately, we we still have some lost souls to Mm -hmm. regain, as it were. But um, in our our new thinking about this, we've both acknowledged that um, being a very devout Catholic in the 15th century was a bit different than it would be in say the 17th century or even, or today. So for instance, um, the best example of this, I think is about taking communion. So I had um, uh, in the Catholic tradition of the 17th century, taking frequent communion very frequently is a sign of uh, devotion and attending mass all the time is really important, but especially also taking communion. But in the 15th century, they thought that taking communion frequently was a sign of uh, being over-eager, really, and it should be enough to witness the miracle of the mass happening. Sort of, by witnessing the mass, you could see the, um, the miracle of the transformation of bread and wine into, um, into the and body and blood of Christ and that should be enough for a good believer so you know some historians in the in the 40s and 50s said ha huh, you see in flanders nobody ever takes communion that must be a sign that they weren't very good christians but now we think differently we think well you know people there were just different standards in the church mm-hmm. the catholic church especially is not very good at admitting that it's ever changed so so it tends to you know it, it's very much built on the projection of the idea that it's been the same church forever and that is clearly not the case. I mean, it's no. it's developed over time. So um, that's confused hist- generations of Catholic historians as well. Since the 90s, we've started to think differently about these things. And that also helps us appreciate that uh, Catholics in, this, in the Netherlands were really very uh, good Catholics before the Reformation. But, of course, that begs the question, so what went wrong?
1: So what happens? What yeah.
0: happened? What happened? Why did they then... Mm-hmm. Um, abandon their faith? Or with why did a a sizable group of people abandon their faith? And also, why did the rest of the population do very little to stop Protestantism when it was happening?
1: You know, those were my next two questions right in order. So you are doing a great job of (laughs) interviewing yourself. (laughs) Please, please explain these things to me. That is, that's, you're you are prescient, so yeah. Mm-hmm. What's next? Um, you know what? So if
0: we think perhaps um, one of
1: the th- one of the things that may be helpful in this
0: respect is to think of Protestantism as something that emerges out of Catholicism, mm-hmm. okay. as something that um, um, that is one answer to uh, a, a number of worries that people have about the state of the church. And it is a radical new answer because it rejects the idea that uh, priests um, can help you go to heaven. Mm-hmm. That's, and that contact with the sacraments is necessary to go to heaven. But it emerges f- so, and so, so because for Protestants, uh, at least you need fewer sacraments and priests are no, in, in, the, in the Protestant way of thinking, priests are not forgiving your sins. God forgives your sins, mm-hmm. right? So in the in the Catholic tradition, um, uh, in the medieval Catholic tradition, a believer's task is um, to be a good believer and to take the sacraments and to and the priests act as mediators between you and God. Now even in the Middle Ages, people had increasingly priests had said to lay people that isn't really enough. You need you should be doing a bit more than to just turn up on Sunday, take communion with, at Easter, and um, um, it, it, to good, be a good yeah. Christian, you really ought to be engaging more with the message of the gospel. Um, they had encouraged reading. They had encouraged meditating on these things. Um, they had encouraged people to. Uh, look at early Bible translations. Uh, there were quite a few Bible translations even in the in the 15th century, and um, so the idea that um, uh, lay people should themselves make an effort to contribute to this salvation—that it isn't just good enough to, you know, pay for some see, kiss some relics or uh, go on go on lots of pilgrimages and so on—that is all over oh, late medieval Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now there are also lots of systemic problems in the church that everybody actually agrees are systemic problems, and that those have to do partly with the well, a lot of that has to do with the fact that the church doesn't really control its own finance or its own personnel. You know, the church is the the head, the the the, the religious head of the system, as it were. Um, but in fact it is people on the ground who make the appointments, who have the right to appoint. Uh, parish priests, and so on. And the material, uh, the rewards um, for those priests are also associated with individual posts and individual churches, rather than in some sort of system where you say a parish priest is great to get so much money. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, lots of people had uh, lots of secular rulers got a vested interest in uh, appointing people who they thought needed rewarding the benefits of those uh, of good clerical posts were sort of siphoned off by people collecting several of these posts and then putting in poorly paid substitutes to uh, to do the job and all this g- gave people a feeling that something was not right among its person in among the personnel of the church and in a way in some ways as the as lay people got better at taking charge of their own piety and priests, more priests seemed less capable of actually doing the job, for instance, by being a poorly educated substitute, the the, the sense of um, the sort of self-evident hierarchy between priests and lay people started to shift.
1: Sure, right. and And that barrier kind of breaks down. And that,
0: that, that yeah. meter is the one who, who draws the most radical consequence of that and says, well, actually, um, you know, priests are not really that different from other people. They're, not, they're certainly not better people. The church knew that this could be the case. Right. And in fact, um, we should all as Christians uh, prostrate ourselves before the Almighty, and that's including priests. And we are all we can do is listen to the at God's word, and that should be what gets us into um into heaven so the the role of priests changes they should be teachers rather than mediators
1: so as we see as we see um a reforming we see that there are problems with the church doctrinally yeah. and in practice and so there's the reforming urge that everyone is seeing and in some ways that happens by the lay people behaving better in some places that's by questioning the church yeah. so then when you, when some of the population is like, hey, this Luther guy, we should check that out, that's not necessarily discernible from, you know, I should spend more time, I should also be more attentive, I should read my Bible. Is that kind of what's going on here?
0: No, but, but I think the sort of people who are used to t- doing their own Bible reading and thinking that they should be doing more are sensitive to the sorts of messages that Luther is mm-hmm. sending. Okay. Um, And that's true for both priests and lay people. So some priests think, oh, perhaps I should think differently about my role. Um, Lay people start reading and start talking to each other about these things. And um, that means that there is a, uh, especially among the literate classes in the cities, there is a sort of group of people who say, oh, well, we're always talking about how to make the church better. Perhaps this is a way to make the church better all oh, right so, so for initially i think lots of people like luther himself don't necessarily see that this is going to go into a you know head headlong break with the church or they think there must be a compromise or whatever and they're faced with authorities who are very adamantly against their their king is very much against all this attitude but even they are sending us like mixed messages because they're also really keen on reforming the church and so on. They're also saying, Oh, we need to, and and indeed the Council of Trent is also there to reform the church. So this means that there, I think everybody is quite used in the early 16th century or by the early in the mid-16th century to people who are having developing their own ideas on what you might want to do in the church. And um uh And you can also see that anybody, it's a sort of tradition in the Catholic Church, that if you want to um, raise awareness or you want to say um, we should do things differently, people tend to set up a new religious order Mm -hmm. or uh, a new religious movement, which then capitalizes and, and, and promotes itself by saying everybody else is doing really badly here, but we are the ones who are going to, you know, do the preaching or doing it better and so on. Right, yeah. so, so that sort of doom and gloom rhetoric, as it were, is all over the place, including among uh, Catholics. Sure. The new, the, the radical new ideas, how radical they are, becomes apparent only gradually. And certainly city authorities and also city dwellers in the Netherlands uh, tend to think that there should be room to, this, to, to have these conversations without not immediately endangering everybody's souls. So, they right. don't like the very, um, the, their king, Philip, uh, uh, Charles V, first and later Philip II, take a different attitude. They see heresy as a sort of cancer, that if you don't cut off the uh, rotting limbs, you must uh, have that, that will kill the body. So, you must be much more drastic in eradicating um, heresy. So, you can see there's a sort of conflict there. And on the whole, even Catholics, City dwellers tend to be on the side of moderation and think, oh, "Well, sure.
1: it should be okay." These are Dutch people, right? Like proto-Dutch well, but, people.
0: But but that is that's in, in a way a circle, you know. That's, <laughs> right. that's a circular because that's precisely. Um, uh, I mean, well, that's how th- there we are did. there are people radicalizing, mm-hmm. Protestants radicalizing, but most of them are forced to leave the country. They go into they're forced into exile, so they're punished. There um, uh, and many many of them go to live abroad, as it were, for many years until they see a moment, finally a window in which they can return. And then they, when they want to, uh, they want radical change. And then that change comes in a very violent and right. and drastic way. And Catholics are not very well prepared for that. Okay.
1: And yeah, what, because there's yeah. There's this other piece, which is that we have also then the revolt, right? Yes. So there is a political change that's happening yeah. in the middle yeah. of that. How does that map on? Yeah.
0: Well, I think perhaps we should... Um, um, the response of the church to all this chaos okay. is mm-hmm. to, to all the new movements could be to to get quite competitive and lead a fight. And that's what the church, response of the church eventually was to be. But in the first decades... The church tends to think that um, the the fight, the theological fighting should be done between theologians mm-hmm. and therefore okay. lay people shouldn't, shouldn't be, um, you shouldn't preach to them about heresy because that might just give them ideas. People who were otherwise innocent are, you know, are you going to talk to them about what really happens in the Eucharist or are you just going to let them believe that there is a miracle and that's a good thing? Now, they basically make the... They, they make a sort of judgment call encouraged by the government that it's better not to talk to lay people about heresy and to preach about it instead and say, you know, everybody in society has sins. Priests have priestly sins. Um, merchants have merchant sins. Widows have widow sins. And what we need to do is to let everybody sort out their own sins. Ergo, um, the problems in the church need to be sorted out by your priests. We will come back to you when we're done. Now this is very confusing for Catholics because in their everyday lives they increasingly meet people who say to them, "Ha, huh, you're still doing that relic stuff." I've read a book that says that that's all rubbish. But there are there are no Catholic priests who who advise you on what to reply to people who say this to you. They say, "Oh well, you go away and do deal with your widow sins," right? Mm-hmm. So so there is a, a a sense in a way in which clerical leadership in this uh, as Protestantism is slowly um, spreading um, under the population, Protestant ideas are spreading, there isn't a very clear answer given by the church, and there certainly isn't any clerical leadership in opposing, in in giving, in basically mobilizing lay people to do anything about it. So they say, leave it to the professionals, we'll do it. Now, that all goes terribly wrong in 1566 when... Um, Basically, the uh, nobility of the Netherlands are um, presenting a petition to the king to say the way you want to solve this problem of Protestantism is no longer the right way to proceed. Because um, just um, putting up pyres, you know, death sentences, its it's really not working. You can see it's not working. And in the meantime, we are now living in a part of Europe where the French are attempting a sort of religious coexistence. The Germans have found solutions to have bi-confessional cities. England has become Protestant. Scotland has become Protestant. We have to do business with all these people. We can't kill every Lutheran that sets foot in Antwerp. So come with a better solution. Um, And they think the solution is to get some sort of... um, Freedom of conscience is what they call it. Um, you should be able to let people believe what they want to believe. It's all very unfortunate, all this trouble in the church. But for now, you have to just uh, find a way of dealing, integrating it into your society. Now, while they're th- this petition is is presented in April, and while they're waiting for for a response from Madrid, which is a long way away mm-hmm. in this period and, and takes time, um, the... The the king's representative in Brussels um, says, okay, for now we will just postpone or uh, uh, there will be moratorium on any heresy prosecutions. So we won't be prosecuting anybody. And this creates a window which I think nobody saw coming for lots of refugees, people who had fled the country because to come back, and to openly start lobbying for more Protestantism in the country. And they start organizing big rallies around the cities where people come to, you know, people go in their thousands to hear what's going on and so on. And this culminates in a, in a very hot, politically hot summer in which ultimately um, a group of lay preachers, or Protestant preachers, are uh, starting to... Um, uh, Promote um, iconoclasm. And what starts as a sort of incident or two in, a, in West Flanders then spreads like a sort of wildfire through all of the Netherlands. And this causes, of course, a major political crisis because now, um, you know, the call for toleration seems to have produced a, you know, has let the ghost out of the bottle, as it were, that is, genie out of the bottle. And that is really, um, so what next? Now, the the nobles think the answer to this should be to negotiate with Calvinists, but the king of Madrid has a very different idea and decides to um, uh, send in uh, a police, uh, a a general with an army to put down these rebellious subjects. Yeah. Well, there's a very long story, but it basically means this triggers then a conflict that um, because there is never a moment in which there is a, a peace is being made, basically doesn't really end the Protestant threat. And the Protestants are back in 1572 when they restart a, um, a revolt and ultimately um, start taking over power in quite a lot of uh, cities
1: mm-hmm. and also start to uh, ban Catholicism. Right, which was not necessarily like given either that it was going to go that way that then like this reforming spirit would ban catholicism that wasn't there that didn't have to happen well
0: um, i suppose uh, the um uh protestants who had fled who had had to flee because they were being persecuted um felt never felt safe when there were catholic catholic priests around basically so there. First impulse was to um, want well, first of all, to to Protestantize their own communities, but also to stop anybody else from uh, from uh, still preaching Catholicism. That's the absolutist way in which these people argue. Um, and um, whether that succeeds or not in the Netherlands depends a bit on which part you're talking about, and also how. Um, uh, so in the uh, in the bit of the of the in the northern Netherlands what is now the Netherlands the country um, the authorities say okay we're going to be all Protestant but we're not going to spend a lot of energy on on persecuting minorities not least because they had a war to win so um, mm. uh, although out there's a sort of semblance of Protestantism they um, uh, they basically, Tolerated a bit like drug, you know, Dutch soft drugs policy, as it you are not supposed to say that you're selling it, but you are, but it's there. Right. Um, what's what's happening in the in the southern provinces? So that's current day Flanders. Um, is that there the um, um, the Pro- the takeover of Protestants goes together with quite a lot of social activism, which for a variety of reasons means that the the regimes there become much more um, theocratic and much more inclined to actually make the life of other of Catholics hard. So that in itself creates an, a problem. I mean, they're everywhere. They're in the in the course of this armed rebellion against the king and against Catholic authority. Um, there are refugees everywhere, and plots of them, the, the, the ex-Protestant refugees basically chase away some uh, some Catholics. Mm-hmm. But you can see that, especially in these Catholic refugee community from the southern Netherlands, they are in their in various places where they end up having to shelter for. Um, abroad. they they stop being so. Um, Uh, well, they they finally um, uh, decide that um, um, they need to mobilize collectively against the Protestant threat. And you can see that they start doing that um, under the leadership of new religious um, groups in the Catholic Church, like the Jesuits. And the Jesuits had initially also felt that uh, uh, lay people shouldn't you know, shouldn't intervene. But the in the in the course of the revolt you see that they, they that they actually think what we need to do is to train lay people to start doing some of the work for us. Right. So we need to school these people and train them in how to talk to heretics and how to explain to them that what they believe in is um is wrong and why. And this you can see that this also finally gives Catholics something to do in this conflict that they're living through so that you know by now we're we're living in the 15 late 1570s mm-hmm. they have now for 15 years been in a position where uh, you know from a situation where they thought well perhaps we should tolerate Ca- Protestants because that's better for business and why be so mm-hmm. difficult to them um, they've suddenly become the sort of uh, 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 underlying party, as it were, in a society that is rapidly, um, where Protestants are taking over control. Mm-hmm. But they've been struggling to find answers for this. And you can see that in in this, under pressure of this radicalism, they are beginning to find solutions of their own. So the, for instance, people in Brussels, which for some time is a Calvinist republic, it's difficult to imagine that now, but it was. Um, so um, people are Um, the processions are all banned, and all the religious processions that Catholics hold. So people start walking those procession routes collectively Mm -hmm. uh, anyway without all the pomp and circumstance. But, of course, that's a type of demonstration that the authorities can't do very much about. So so there's a sort of passive resistance there. Uh, But it's the people in exile, in a way, who develop together with their clergymen a new way Of thinking about this, that is much more activist, much more aggressive, also, and much more counter Reformation, if you want.
1: But we're—I mean—at this point, we have a new generation as well, right? At this point, there's a group of people who have only known, um, yeah, uh, multiple confessions.
0: Yes, so so they also become more. They, they are themselves clearer on what the difference is or what they think the difference is between a Catholic and a Protestant. And this is still not true for many people in the countryside. I mean, even, certainly in the Dutch Republic, we know that deep until this, into the 17th century, there are people who think, who still think, what does it matter? Let's follow Christ. Mm-hmm. But you can see that especially through the mix with war and violence and power struggle, um, People, more people, have felt that they need to take sides and that they want to take sides.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, so how, so how do we get to a tolerant Dutch Republic that is, and uh, you know, and how do we have the revolt in the Netherlands? How is that sewn up, and how do we kind of where do how do we get to where we are now? Well. Um
0: the the um the Dutch um basically this revolt ends up creating two states. One of them is the current day Netherlands and the other are is Belgium, Belgium and Luxembourg. Um the the Netherlands um um the, 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 the rebels in the Netherlands um have not had time to convert everybody by the time they try and form an independent political community. So they're always assuming it's going to take more time to, and th- you know they don't have the ministers, they don't have the staff, as, if you want, to actually make this happen immediately. And they're um, also having a war to win, um, and they need um, people to stay on message for that war. And therefore, they decide not to be too pushy when it comes to actually imposing Protestantism. So what they do is they make the Protestants, the the Reformed Protestantism, the most favoured religion. That is to say, all the church buildings go to them uh, or can can be used by them. Um, They will pay for the ministers. uh, They will pay for theological training. They will listen to the advice of uh, reformed ministers, and um, only in 1618 do all politicians also have to be uh, favourable to the reformed religion. Um, All others are officially not allowed to worship, but they do get freedom of conscience, and this is partly a legacy of that the the world of um, of persecution that they had left behind. So the people. Um, the Dutch Revolt was born out of the rejection of persecution and death penalties and so on as the best way to deal with the troubles of Christendom. And this is about the one ideological commitment that they retained: is that they didn't want a system in which people would go and knock people knock on people's doors to see if they hadn't got a statue of the Virgin hidden somewhere. So, so they, you know, they wanted the the. Um, They said, "Okay, no more pyres, no more religious trials. We're not going to try anybody for their religious beliefs. That basically meant that that what people did at home, basically, was not the affair of anybody in the state. And so as long as you can do that, it's possible for dissidents to regroup and to at least have um, religious meetings at home. And increasingly, they were also, you know, harboring priests, uh, paying them and so on. And it's the places where there are enough Catholics to pay for that, because, of course, there is, you know, there's suddenly no money whatsoever, Um, that these communities can survive and can even thrive. Um, The rest of the population has to, you know, people... The re, the, the gener, gener, generally, if we think that by 1620, so, so that's about 50 years after this revolt starts, about only 20% of the population was a card-carrying Reformed Protestant. So about 20% are card-carrying Catholics, 10% Lutherans, Mennonites, that sort of thing. And about half the population isn't, in fact, hasn't made a choice to commit to anything. So they're not secular, because they all go to church, they all have their children baptized, they think of themselves as Christians, but they've basically, their their conclusion out of all this has been, um, uh, surely it's up, between the Christian and his God have together got to sort this out. So that's what's it's quite interesting, because it's about the only place in Europe where this happens, right? Uh, where there is an option not to be anything. So that's very so that's that, that's quite new. Now the Southern Netherlands are different because there they have the the King of Spain has made his peace with the with the inhabitants of current day Belgium by saying, Okay, so we've reconquered you. That's what the armies had done. We're not going to punish you. So no more pyres here either. But anybody who wants to be a Protestant has to leave. You get six months to pay your stuff, you know, to, to sell your stuff and and you go elsewhere. Anybody who doesn't want to do it, by default, we assume will be a Catholic. Um so they didn't set up an enormous administration to try and work, you know, to try and force you know oaths or anything like that out of people. But basically the message was if you're still here and you think you can do Protestant things, you are in breach of the law. Um, and you can get into trouble. So, people did, some people did stay and did have meetings and so on, but uh, they had to do so in secret. And, but most people didn't stay, and about 100,000 people, that's a lot of people in, in a population of that time. That is, you know, they think there were probably about, at the beginning of the revolt, about 2 million and, and uh, 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 people in the Southern Netherlands or in, in Belgium. So that's, that's lots of, that's one in five, you know, that's what, and uh, yeah, that's, that is, uh, uh, um, that's a lot of people. A hundred thousand people is a lot of people. That's,
1: yeah. That's a lot of people. And especially if we think about them being thing, yeah. like in urban centers, right. These are the people. Yes, whom, yes. Right. So. so,
0: so these urban centers really are, you know, they also feel it. And lots mm-hmm. of these people ended, ended up going in the, being in the, in the, in the Northern Netherlands and actually, mm-hmm. um, being there, also the most committed Reformed Protestants um, right, in sorry. in these in in the northern uh, Provin- Pro- provinces. Now, the what happens in the southern to... Netherlands is that something fun, quite funny, happens, and that was one of the things that I want to explain in the book, is how it's possible that after this reconquest of the south, the southern Netherlands then suddenly become the most orthodox Catholic place on the planet, more or less. <laughs>
1: Which is saying a thing in this Which period. Which is saying a thing in this period, but, yeah. but it really is,
0: they, they are really going for it. And I think that is, that's, that's not just that the Protestants have left, because after all, before 1566, Catholics weren't that, were crit- very critical Catholics. It's also not that the state is suddenly so much more effective. Or indeed that the church has so much more control because the Counter reformation church still doesn't control its personnel or its money. And just as in the Middle Ages, I mean, they they have better ideas about what they want from them, but they but it's not as if they can suddenly make that all happen. There's a wonderful book by by a Craig Harleen called A Bishop's Tale, which is based on the diaries of a the Archbishop of uh, of Mechelen, and. The poor art arch- well you, you don't want to be an archbishop in there. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's a very hard life. I mean the, the amount of opposition and almost all of it is clerical and, and internal. So yes. so reforming the church is really hard, but the what I think really matters here is that the Catholics who got fed up with Calvinist rule and returning Catholic refugees are actually empowered both by the church and the state, to take charge and to uh, define, yeah. redefine right, yeah. what the um, what Belgium, what what the future future Belgium. It's not called Belgium yet at that stage. Yeah. What, what, what what those lands have to be, and right. then you see okay. a sort of raise. You know, these it's the it's refugee families who build the most. You know, invest in in these fantastic churches in Antwerp and um, and uh, Brussels and so on by build the art. Uh, the um, uh, commission altarpieces, build chapels, uh, all that exuberance, all those Rubenses, as it were, they're paid for by that generation that has sort of knows what it does want.
1: Okay. And then, and then at this point, we have two two separate areas with two separate religions. That's right. The, that's right. That's that's our kind of that is going to lead us to the modern state of affairs. Yes,
0: I think so. yeah yeah. yeah. that's right. And because they're at war with each other, they also come to define themselves very much against the others, of course. So there is a, a sense in which you know the fact that, there, that the war between those the kings of Spain and the Dutch Republic continue up to 1648 also um, makes it very relevant as it were, as it were to, to remind people what they are fighting for and against. And there are, uh, um, so there are, uh, um, uh, you can see that in the Southern Netherlands, especially the sort of enormous revival of quite mm. what, what, what a generation earlier you would have thought of as old fashioned types of uh, devotion. So uh, um you know pilgrimages and relic shrines and so on they become incredibly popular again partly because also the new rulers of the of those areas say well this is the way to win the war what we need to do you know this war is caused by the fact that we didn't we weren't christian enough and we were failing and it's only by showing our devotion and our devotion to the Virgin and so on that we can will ever win this war. So it becomes a very political thing to be a devout Catholic, as it were.
1: Yeah, right. And it becomes a very religious thing to be a devout, like devoutly uh, separatist government, right? Uh,
0: yes, yes. So, so you can say in a way they have a they have a um, and in in the in what's now the Netherlands you can see that because there are so many religious groups, they never managed to create a sort of convincing story, a religious story about themselves. Mm-hmm. So instead they focus on developing a story about, you know, the Netherlands as a freedom-loving mm-hmm. f- story, that, a country that was full of the victims of Spanish tyranny. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's a, a secular, a very almost nationalist story like we know of the 19th century. Uh, many mm-hmm. countries in the 19th century whereas in the southern Netherlands where they have a much easier time they just fall back on a sort of this you know our love for this dynasty has forever uh, you know um, uh, been there and together we've always been committed to the virgin right.
1: indeed all right <laughs> always committed to the virgin is a very important yeah, part of the yeah, exactly. there we, there so we go, we go. Exactly. <laughs> right. so
0: so it is um and but and you can see that that's culture. Um, that way in which that is that is developed and culturally and so on, I think inspires, for instance, also the piety of the Austrian Habsburgs when they hmm. in the 30 Years War start to um, re-catholicize the uh, the Empire, they, uh, they take take a leaf out of the book of the of their cousins in, um, in Brussels on how to actually make that happen.
1: That is fascinating. Ah, wonderful. Thank you so much. Judith, I've taken up quite a bit of your time, and I know you've got even more to do this afternoon. So thank you for spending some time with me. Um, Congratulations on the paperback copy of this book. Thank you very Um, much. And it's it's been a while since you wrote it, so thanks for taking some time to talk to me about it. But it's an important book, and I want it to be available to our listeners.
0: Thank you. Thanks very
1: much. Well, thank you for talking to me. All right. You have a lovely day. Thank you.